Hello and welcome to Roses Radio, Voices Saving Lives. This podcast is presented by Roses in the Ocean, an Australian-based national not-for-profit that's been founded in order to change the way suicide is spoken about, understood and prevented. We hope that by presenting lived experience stories along with the insights and wisdom of the courageous people who share them, we will help to dispel some of the myths about suicide, improving the suicide literacy of our communities and contributing to reducing the fear, discrimination and judgement that sadly still inhibits our ability to support others and seek help. At Roses in the Ocean we believe that most suicides are preventable and we need to be able to openly speak about suicide. So please, open your hearts and minds to the possibilities that a deeper understanding of suicide can bring to saving lives. Well, hello, folks, and welcome back to Roses Radio. And today we have the opportunity to spend some time with Cheryl. Welcome to Roses Radio, Cheryl. You're welcome. Thank yeah. you. Tell us a little bit about you. You um, you live in South Australia. Um, whereabouts in South Australia do you live? Um, I'm at the moment living two and a half hours north of Adelaide. Uh, so Adelaide being the capital city of SA. Um, so I work with Australian Red Cross there. And um, so doing finance sort of has been my working life. I come from a family of four girls and my dad has passed. Mum is still with us. Um, so I'm second in the chain. Your story is amazing. Um, and uh, what a gift it is um, that you bring it to us um, on so many different levels. And the story really does uh, start with your, uh, your son, uh, Andy, or as you call him. Andrew. Andrew, um, as mums do. They mm. tend to uh, call us by our real names. Um, to everyone else, he's Andy. And um, Andy was uh, quite the kid and still is. Um, and uh, I can imagine, um, knowing a little bit about your story, that he was quite the precocious young child. Tell us a little bit about his upbringing. Andy, um, he's always, even from being a toddler, uh, even a baby, he was inquisitive. Um, and, you know, at the age of two and he was, or well, 18 months, he was in a cot and I wanted to put him in, just umming and ahhing about putting him into bed. And one day I woke up and he was still in the cot phase and he was next to my bed. And wow, how did that happen? So I went and investigated. So somehow his little mind worked out to pull up the mattress and pull up the slats and out he got. He got out from underneath. So Amazing. I, you know, <laughs> put the slats back in place. Next night, same thing happened. I thought, well, you're obviously ready to go into a bed. So very inquisitive mind. Um, and as he grew up... Um, Adrenaline seemed to be what fired him. And also um, with that adrenaline uh, is the risk taking with Andy's is a, a fine line between um, things going really well and the other side of that things going really badly. Yeah, he, he appeared um, in some footage and there's a, a wonderful uh, YouTube, YouTube clip. I think it's called Unstoppable or That's correct. Live Unstoppable. Something it's like. Unstoppable, um, Kellogg's Nutri-Grain. Yeah, Unstoppable. unstoppable. Um, and it's a, a kind of 12-minute clip about, uh, about Andy's journey. 
Um, and there's some wonderful footage in there mm-hmm. of him as a, as a kid. Uh, he just seems like he was completely fearless when it came to just, you know, there's one particular piece of footage where he gets on this two-wheel bike, it looks like for the first time, and I'm, um, I assume that it's his dad that um, gives him a little push and he just off he goes until he sort of slams headfirst into this, um, this mound of dirt. Mm. Uh, he just seemed to have no concept of the fact that he could get hurt. No, there's uh, with Andy. That's uh, the risk taking in him, and um, I just think with him, um, that sense of adventure was very strong for him. And as I discovered in his teenage years, that the the part of the brain that develops the uh, ability to think of the consequences before one does an action. Um, develops later in boys and I've come to realise with Andy's journey that you know having children is like fruit on a tree they don't all ripen at the same time and Andy was a late bloomer so in maturity stakes and my knowledge of Andy um, is that he's got a very kind heart and it's very hard to be a sensitive male in a man's world. And I feel for the male species who are wired like that because I think part of Andrew's risk-taking was him not acknowledging that sensitive side in him and having a sense of having to fit in brought out the risk-taking. So a desire to prove to other males that he was in fact a male yes. led him to push further than others would potentially go. Yeah. And I think too, um, it's been my experience with Andrew, is that sensitive males tend to have more friends who are girls than they do guys. Was that something that was part of his teenage years? He tended to gravitate to uh, a lot of female company and was very popular with the, the, the ladies? Absolutely. Even in um, primary school, he he always seemed to have more friends that were girls. And obviously, as you mature and get up into those teenage years, that becomes a bit of a pecking order for the boys, the other boys. And I think with Andrew, um, what when he the girls gravitated to him because there was just something about Andy that they liked... Um, he got a sense of this popularity type thing, the ego kicking in. He enjoyed that. Yes. And I think that's been part of Andrew's growing up and balancing act and in finding um, how to find himself and be okay with being himself um, without having to do extreme things to get acknowledgement Uh, from his peers so I do remember saying to him going in the uh, high school years just be yourself Andy it's as simple as that Um, but you know all those words of wisdom mean nothing until the maturity kicks in in the person. Mm. Was he driven as as a kid? Absolutely and uh it's the tunnel vision that Andy has and when he has a goal um, or an idea that he wants to pursue, it's 100% for that. 
And that's something that he's having to learn or had to learn to manage that sometimes things do come from left field um, to make you stop and think. Whereas, And when in his younger days, he would just continue to plough through without acknowledging these little things that would pop up, these little humps um, that would pop up. So mentally, um, if Andy is not busy mentally... Um, he will usually find himself in places that he wished he wasn't in. <laughs> yeah, mentally, <clears throat> emotionally. Yeah. 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 So, you know, during those teenage years as he was grappling with trying to work out, uh, you know, where he fitted and what he was and, and how to uh, socialise himself into um, lots of those different environments, uh, did you worry? Were you concerned about him? Um I don't know that concern is the word because I was surviving being the parent and trying to um, guide him on, you know, where society accepts certain behaviours or not. And he he was in... He just would not listen. Um, but that's where I believe now that the maturity eventually kicks in. And... Um, yeah, I just think with Andy, he's he was on a mission and in his young life and it was almost like he had to achieve everything he possibly could because the potential was he wasn't here for a long time. And I say that because over the years when I've been in troubled times myself, I've gone and had readings <clears throat> and even though I don't play by them by the book it just gives me the light at the end of the tunnel and it enabled me to keep keep going and one of those readings without any knowledge of Andrew said with your son if you can keep him alive till he's 23 you should be right so 22 he had his freestyle motorbike accident um, and became a paraplegic so um it's always been in my mind that if this was Andrew's journey in life, to have a short life, well, I could understand why he packed so much into it. But my assumption is that you wouldn't have ever anticipated that um, that that reading about the shortness or otherwise of his life was associated with suicide. It was more associated with risky behaviour. For me, it was about um, accepting, accepting that Andy had the potential to pass before me. Um, how that was going to happen, I had no idea. And I didn't dwell on that at all. It was just something that was spoken of and I listened and it gave me a little bit more of an understanding of potentially what was pushing Andy. And the thing that I think about what his friend said about um, Andy saying that he could change the sport, but what I see happen now is the sport changed Andy and he didn't see that coming. And it really took the wind out of his sails for where he saw his life going. Before we get to talking about the accident in a bit more detail... Andy, you, 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 in, in some of the notes um, that we've discussed prior, 
Um, you talk about Andy, you worrying about Andy's mental health and, and his state of mind from a suicidal ideation perspective, I think when Andy was in his late teens. And a mother's sense about where her son was at uh, came to play. And you had the courage to uh, confront that. Um, tell me about that experience and why did you believe that something was not right? What did you notice? So Andy, in his at 19 years of age, um, found himself in trouble with the law. And so we were going through an 18-month process with that. And... It was during these conversations at the time he was uh, living with his dad, which um, at that point was about an hour and a half away from me. Andrew and I have a very close relationship and always have. And we're, some people would say, in tune with each other yep. in a way. Mm -hmm. um, so over the 18-month period of time, Andrew and I had numerous phone calls and he was... Um, quite often crying. Um, he was still had his apprenticeship at that time. What was he an apprentice as? Motor mechanic. Motor mechanic, okay. Yep. So, so this, this day, for some reason, because of the tears, um, I just sensed that I needed to ask the question. Um, so on his father's side, there is... Um, um, suicide in the family so for me I needed to ask him directly um, through whilst he was crying Andrew are you suicidal and there was a three second delay which felt like 30 seconds and sobbing on the phone and then this voice says I couldn't do that to dad and you, mum. So within me, I felt a sense of, right, I've got that question out of the way and I feel comfortable that he won't follow through. So that was very important for me to ask that question um, because at that point I felt by asking the question, it's not something you could lie about. But as the years have gone on, there is no reason why they couldn't lie about it. But in that moment and in the early stages of this journey with Andy, um, that was my belief. And it bought me time. What was it like for you to ask that question? I think for me it was um, the bigger picture because none of us know how long we're on this earth for and it, it's um this is purely my view is that if you can't ask the question it's more about you than the person because obviously you don't want to hear the answer if they say yes so if you're not in that place to accept the answer don't ask the question and one of my things I've learned in parenting, probably too late, but on reflection is if you ask your child a question and they respond with an answer, that means they don't want to tell you the answer. So um, I think it is just in moments of trauma, 
The one answer has to be honesty. And, and if you can be that honest with yourself and with the person that's in the situation, then it, it's, everything's out in the open. There's no hiding behind anything and you know exactly what you're dealing with. It was a really tough time for Andy, wasn't it, at, at that point in time? I mean, the pressure of, of getting in trouble with the law. And, and Andy ended up doing some time, didn't he? He yes. ended up going to jail for a little while. How long was he in jail for? So his sentence was two and a half years with a 12-month non-parole, which meant he had to serve six months. And what so, was that like for him? Um, f- for me as a mother, looking on from his perspective, unimaginable. I could not imagine how he was coping in that environment. Because was this his first offence? Yeah, yes. Was this the first time he'd ever been in trouble with the law? Um, speeding and all yeah, typical, typical teenage stuff. boys thing. But this was the first, first offence. Um, so Andy, what I've, our experience was that um, one size fits all. It doesn't matter how old you are or what you've done you go into maximum security until you get processed. So Andy's a fine build person, not very tall, and he was sharing the same space as the Snowtown murderers. Um, so I have asked him how, how he's coped with that initially. So, um, you know, get, getting put into a cell with another person and so I think some of the people in the system um, that have some humaneness about them put him in with somebody who would um, keep an eye on him a bit. So it was an elder person and uh, he helped Andrew adjust to the rules of um, how things happen. And it was, you know, lockdown to be fed through the door of a jail and 45 minutes out in the sun. I, I just don't know how he coped with that mentally because I can't think about it. And at the time I could not think about it because it would take me to a dark place and there was not a thing I could do about it. Mm. Um, my dad had passed in the February, so I did a lot of praying to my dad and um, asking him to Mm. protect Andy. Mm. And there was somebody in our local community who had um, somebody working in that prison. So they also kept a bit of an eye on Andy as well. But the thing is, Lane, that um, what Andrew got caught up with and the reason why he was there there was a bit of street-wiseness about him, which I don't like to acknowledge, but there has had to be. So on some level, he he was a little bit... Um, had the coping mechanisms, which I certainly wouldn't have had. Mm. Did you go down and visit him? Uh, absolutely. And what was that like? Um, I remember saying to Andrew when we were waiting for the 18-month thing, um, for the 18-month process... And, and it's an extremely stressful time, numerous court hearings, and the knowing of that there is someone else going to make a decision about your life and you were going to have to deal with it. So I said to Andrew, 
I will support you on this level once, but you make this choice again, I will care about you, but I will not support you. And for me, it was about, I'm going to be in your face because this is what you've got to lose, and that is family. And it's cost me my relationship with my daughter. So I chose to give Andy a high level of support because I didn't want the street to have my son. So going into jail and visiting, so you get a time one time a week where you have to ring up and book in. And I chose to say to his mates, let me know when you're going and I'll book you in. So that was more about me. If Andy didn't have a visitor, I would go. So going into the jail, um, I wanted to be very unassuming in my appearance. So all the jewellery was off and I just dressed casual and uh, you go in, you've got to sign in, you've got to put your bits, keys and etc. in a locker, you get given keys, you've got to wait until other people are processed, then you get walk into a locked area, they shut the gate behind you, you've got a locked gate in front of you, you've got to wait for them to open the gate, then you walk down to where you have to go, you've got another gate and you wait and until they're ready to let you in. Um, and one time we had the dog squad was, was there, so um, you had to wait and we had, obviously they had to do their job. Um, and then you were allowed in and you had to wait in another locked area. And then when you got into the space, um, there's small round tables uh, cemented into the ground. It's a, it's, um, it's like a big canteen area. They do have a canteen area where they can, people can buy bits and pieces. Um, so all, you're surrounded by uh, prison guards, etc. And um, yeah, it was very hard. And because Andy was in, I'm not sure if it was blue or green overalls, so they're colour coded for the areas that they're in in the jail. Um, yeah, he and I would shed a quiet tear. I can imagine. You got out after how long? Was it uh, was it the six months? Or? Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, I guess he wondered what he was going to do um, from there on. You know, where does life take you after you emerge out of incarceration? It's a it's a big. Even if it's a short amount of time, it's a big adaptation to come back out into civilian life again. How did he cope with that transition? Well, Andy's experience was that if you do the right thing in in the main jail in the city, then um, he was able to be transferred about two hours um, east of Adelaide and it was a more relaxed environment. So um, there was a bit of farming that they could do or fruit picking or things like that. So... One thing that he has said is that it gave him a lot of thinking time about where did my life go wrong. And one of the things that he brought home from that time was a little notepad that had four lines and a line through it. So they were the days. One line represented a day. And that was his countdown mechanism. 
Um, and Andy was very fortunate to have, um, while he was waiting for the court system, um, a, an employee, a, an employer, um, Steve, who was a house painter. And um, I absolutely have so much admiration for that man because a lot of these young lads or, or people, well, it can be women as well, but my experience was on the male side, um, need somebody in the community to believe in them and to give them a second chance. So Steve um, kept Andy on and when Andrew come out of jail, um, Steve took up again. So there had to be arrangements made with um, home detention and corrections about um, when Andy could be at work, what hours he was able to be at work. So permission had to be granted. But I wonder where Andy's life would have gone if that opportunity had not been there for him. So, you know, even though he'd done six months, Andy was still Andy and that adrenaline and risk-taking was still there. But in the sense, the risk-taking was now back into the motorbikes, so the freestyle motocross. He threw himself back into that, didn't he? He was... That drive that you talk about when he was a kid re-emerged. He was absolutely single-minded. I think he talks about uh, you know getting up, uh, riding, going to the gym, sleeping, eating, getting up, and just going again. He just wanted to be the best that he could be. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I'll say about having that justice experience is that quite often the sentence that the community gives these young boys is worse than what the system will give them. And it's a huge hurdle. Stigma and the judgment and... Absolutely. It's a huge hurdle for society to actually have us take a step back and say, well, 19, and let's see if we can give this person a second chance. So that's why I have a lot of admiration for Andy's boss um, in that he was still able to, to do that no matter what other people in the community were saying. So he started riding again and um, he started competing and um, he actually began to reach a really significant level when it came to rankings in Australia for motocross, I think 20 or in the top 20, uh, which is amazing. <laughs> And then he was out at Coonabarra Brand uh, at a new racetrack and he had an accident. Talk me through what happened and how you found out and uh, what, that, what that changed for you. So uh, 29th of June 2012 and um, our, my partner and I, our um, Friday night thing was to go to the golf club the dinner and I remember getting a call from um, Andy's stepmum saying Andrew's had a bad accident. This was around eight o'clock in the evening um, and his dad has flown down, um, was meeting him in Sydney. Um, and I got off the phone and went back to the table of people that we were with and I just said, I knew, I knew something like this was going to happen. Just knew it, so went home and um, just waited. Um, and two o'clock in the morning, I get a phone call from Andy, saying 
mum, I've had an accident. I can't feel my legs. And it's probably one of the dumbest things to say, but it, um, I said, you've been very lucky, Andy. Um, and he said, what do you mean, mum? I can't feel my legs. Um, and then the doctor came on the phone and said, Andy's had a severe spinal cord injury. There's a lot of pressure on his spinal cord and a lot of bruising and there's some vertebrae that um, have been damaged in his back. So um, in between his shoulder blades is where the injury occurred, which was the neck brace that they wear, comes down the front and a bit down the back. So how he landed um, on that, um, cracked his helmet and that's the neck brace um, in between the shoulder blades is what did the damage. Um, so we go, we're taking him into surgery and, um, and we'll be doing the best we can. So I don't have a lot of recollection of my decision-making processes then. Something in me took over and got on the internet, booked a flight um, to Sydney because they were flying him to Royal North Shore. Um, so I remember packing a bag, um, getting to Adelaide at something like six o'clock in the morning. Um, I get to Adelaide Airport totally disorientated and there was one person who happened to be an air hostess walking and I just yelled out to her, can you tell me how to get to the terminal? I've got no idea. And she happened to be somebody, the air hostess that was going to be on that flight. So, um, yeah, got to Sydney by nine o'clock in the morning. Um, and they had arranged for a taxi. They had got my bag and I was just overcome that somebody would do something so nice. So, um, yeah, get taken to um, Royal North Shore Hospital and you find yourself in the waiting room with all these other people of mostly males um, that have had a spinal cord injury at various ages. And I'm sitting there thinking, how the hell did we end up here? And in that moment, I thought, no matter what you see happen to other people in this world, don't think for one minute it can't happen to you because it can. And you just have to hope and pray that it's not your part of your journey. So, Do you still think that Andy's been very lucky? You know, your response to him was, you've been, you're very lucky, Andy. Um, that's an unusual response. Even from you, you kind of acknowledge, wow, I, I, where, where did that come from why did I say that but yet there's a great truth in that in many ways isn't there absolutely what does that mean that means to me it meant he could have died yeah, yeah. and I believe in a split second moment he had a choice to stay or go that's my belief and so that's why I think I said that and that was more about me than him because that would have been my loss um, whereas Andy suffered the loss of his legs and that's been a big challenge for him to overcome as it would be for many, mm. most people. 
And so his story of recovery is pretty remarkable. Um, he appears to have set out with the same level of determination and drive mm. um, to approach his recovery as what he did in approaching his sport. What did you notice about the way that he went about that next kind of you know 12-month, couple-of-year period? Mm. So there was a couple of fundraisers um, to raise some money for Andy because... Once again, during his um, time within the government system, but this time it was in rehab um, in the Hampstead, uh, help, helping them to cope with the movement that they've got and to be able to live a normal possible life as, as possible. Um, so he was doing research, I'm going to walk, and that was his goal. And so he Project Walk in California was designed uh, or came about because of another paraplegic who was going to the gym and, and found that he got um, great um, benefits from the core strength that he gained from going to the gym. So what, what is Project Walk? Explain that. So Project Walk is about um, a facility or physio where they move the limbs of the body so to try and create a new pathway to the brain. Okay. So... So in working with um, stroke victims or people that have lost limbs and all that, it's about the neuropathways being adjusted to cope with the new way of living. Absolutely. So um, that was Andy's goal. So um, he had one of his mates that um, was keen to do an event for him, So which happened in Port Pirie and with another fundraiser that happened here in Adelaide. Andy had approximately $50,000 um, to go towards rehab. And um, given Andrew's um, criminal record, um, the chances of him getting into America would have been a challenge. So then somebody, one of his motorbike friends um, from overseas or here in Australia, I can't remember which one, but said, check out um, um, making strides on the Gold Coast. So as it turned out, there's a couple, one of the girls that works at Making Stride has come from... A California Project Walk. So they've set up a physio specifically for spinal cord brain injuries. So um, Andrew, after he came out of rehab, went and lived with his dad and stepmom. And then his goal was to drive to the Gold Coast. So in that meantime, he'd bought a motorbike because he'd had some money come from his superannuation insurance. And also some insurance that the most of the boys took out at that time that were doing that sport. Um, so he got a brand new motorbike and got it designed so that he could ride it. Um, got some bars put around his legs so that that stabilised his legs. Got the exhaust wound up uh, so that he, because as you know, if Andy burnt his leg, he wouldn't know that he was being burnt. So got that taped up, and. Once he moved back to his dad, he got onto some little 50 motorbikes with his mates. So with the gym work, that gave him some core strength. And the only piece of advice I gave him was make sure you tape up that exhaust because you're not going to know when you're getting burnt and it will take a long time to heal. So I didn't enjoy Andy living this wild life because that's not who I am and it totally took me out of my comfort zone um, being Andy's mum but um, 
anyway, he um, got a trailer and got his motorbike in it and he drove up to the Gold Coast by himself, stopping off at mate's place along the way. Um, sometimes, you know, getting fuel, you know, asking people, showing them $10, fill my car up for me, pay them $10. So, um, you know, he he... There was no adversity that he couldn't overcome in the early stages of his injury. Um, mm. So all all of that fundraising money um, went into his physio and then the money ran out. So then Andy hit a block. So what now? My goal was to be walking and I'm not. So that took Andy on another um, path of self-destruction um, because he still had his insurance money from his super. So, um, yeah, parties, girls, drugs, all those things um, came, you know, to avoid facing the reality. So then that money ran out. So what now? So... Um, I was visiting Andy every three to four months um, and that was the only way that I could show support. Um, he wanted me to move up there. You've got to move up here, mother. And no, I don't, Andy. M things are opening up for me here. So, and I felt between Andrew and I, there was the potential for codependency to happen. Um, because I was there at a high level for the jail, side of things, um, I could see the potential of a pattern set, setting up here. And I didn't want that to happen. That was not right for he, he, either he or myself. So um, that's why I stood my ground on staying where I needed to be. And, and if he wanted to live this life in the fast lane, then that was his choice. But that's not for me. Did you feel like there was a, a kind of repeat of the um, the late teen sort of mental health suicidal ideation stuff starting to emerge again? Um, I hadn't thought of it like that, but I guess um, now that you've said it, that, that possibly that was, you know, in, in the winds behind everything that was going on. And, yeah, definitely um, we talked, Andrew and I talked about the suicide side of things throughout this and, you know, there were times that he put himself in situations which, you know, could have ended up in, in the ultimate price. Um, one, not of his own deliberate choice, but of consequences of his choices. So it wasn't until um, November 2018 that um, I was at work and his dad sent me a text. Have you read Andrew's text? No, I haven't. I'm on my way down to Andrew. So when I read the text, it was a suicide note. So I went to a private space at work and I rang Andrew and I talked to him for an hour and um, I could hear in his voice there was... ..this had gone another level 
and there was determination in his voice of how he was going to do it. And it was like he was, in my mind, I had this vision of him actually about to do it. And so, you know, my words to him were, don't let this be our last goodbye, Andrew, in this way. We've got to find a way to get through this. And honestly, Lane, I don't really remember what else I said to him, but it was about keeping him on the phone while his dad was driving down. Um, so Andrew lives on the Gold Coast and his dad lives at Harvey Bay. It's probably a three-hour drive, yeah. So... And um, he got there and Andy was not in a good way, um, but he was still alive. And what happened after that? So when I'd finished the one-hour phone call with Andrew, I said, I'm going home from work now and I will ring you in half an hour. You be there. And there was no doubt of any question. It was an absolute direct thing. You be there. And so I rang him. Uh, he rang me and said, I'm going down to the boozer, I'm going to get some beer and stuff, and I'm going down the beach. No, you're not. Your dad is driving down to be with you. Do not make him go and have to find you as well, Andrew. You stay where you are. So we talked a little bit longer. Now you wait there until your dad comes. So um, his dad took him off to um, the medical appointments and did all the physical things that needed to be done uh, from that perspective. So um, doctor's appointments there, I don't recall him being, hosp uh, being hospitalised. It was more because Mark was there, uh, his dad was there, that he was able to uh, monitor Andy. So he stayed with him for several weeks um, and then... Well, on the road again, you know, we just, we started the journey again. So let's, so yeah. How is Andy now? Um, as a mother, I've seen my role with Andy along this whole journey, a juggling act of keeping Andy with us while I'm waiting for him to mature. And... Um, even though we've had a couple of close calls, um, Andy is starting to find a purpose. However, having said that, when he has bowel issues, sometimes the medications that he takes, um, he doesn't make it to the toilet on time. He can be at the chemist shop, he can be out shopping and he'll have a bowel accident. It totally throws all the eggs out of Andy's basket. And in those moments, he's ready to leave this world. Just doesn't want to do it. Um, but we managed to work through those phases. Um, and then some work opportunities have started to open up for Andy in the justice space, working with juveniles in justice, trying to keep those young lads out of the system through... Um, his own experience. I've always believed that, um, and I've verbalised to Andy, you do not have these experiences in life that you've had and not give back. 
So I've strongly encouraged him to pursue that. Um, he's not the physical side of things he can't do anymore. He's still wanting to ride the motorbike, but um, there's been times when he does ride the motorbike and he pees blood. So his body's telling him, you know, don't want to do this. But Andy mentally um, has to find something else to replace yeah. that adrenaline. You mention in your notes um, that one of the things that you've come to accept is that whatever it is that Andy chooses to do is Andy's choice. Mm. How do you? How did you reach that point and how does that feel for you to kind of take the weight, the pressure of keeping him alive off your shoulders and to give it back to him and say, I'm going to honour whatever it is that you choose to do? Mm. Um, it's It's been a nine-year journey um, from 19 to where Andy is now. And I've absolutely given everything I can to him. And, uh, you know, you get to a point when you care, when you're a support person at such a high level for such a long period of time that you you process things and you have to say to yourself, I am the means that Andy has had the life. Being a mother, you bring a child into the world. There's no guarantees about how that's going to pan out. And I have nothing more to give Andy. So that's what's made me say that. And I've not only supported Andrew, but I've had my partner with dementia, so there's been a high level of support there. So there's been other things in my life that has required me giving. And I've come to a point that if I keep doing this, I'm going to be the one that's not here. Yeah. So... It, it is a process that I've been through within myself and journaling has helped a lot. So to get the thoughts out of your head and onto paper is, is very therapeutic. Um, and I'm very comfortable that if, if Andrew should choose to leave this world, I've absolutely done my best. And I know that there is never a doubt that it wasn't enough because it was. Yeah, absolutely it was. What other advice do you give to carers to say here's some ways that you might, some behaviours you might like to adopt that are going to help you whilst you go through the complexity of this situation? That's the trick, Lane, because each of us have had lived our own lives before we face these adversities. So you already bring with you a skill set or experiences and behaviours that have helped you get through those past experiences. And this almost takes it to another level. And you've really got to dig deep and um, say, well, what, what do, how do I nurture myself? Because feel very reassured that the person going through the experience, and in my situation it was Andy, he will be looked after somehow, either by the system or 
um, doctors and medications and all those sorts of things. But you as a carer, absolutely, or support person, absolutely have to think about yourself and have no guilt with that whatsoever. Because if you want to be that support person for your loved one, you absolutely have to bring self-care into the equation. And for me, in the early stages, it was champagne and coffee. And I quite enjoy a, a back massage or a hot rock massage or going down to the beach and just listening to the waves and getting totally absorbed into that sound other than the voices in your head. And a lot, from my own experience, um, a lot of the support or care caring role is you're on automated pilot and I don't really recognise or think that I knew too much of what else was happening in my day other than my focus on what was happening with Andrew and the absolute dread of phone calls, it's Andy, what now? Um, and learn, I've learnt to set my own boundaries um, that sometimes when he rings I won't answer and I'm okay with that. Um, but it takes a point to get to that when you know the consequences might be something else. Um, but when you give 110%, there is no more to give. So feel totally comfortable in setting your own boundaries. One of the main things is, I think, what, what are my boundaries and when do I apply them? Listening to... Um, other people's stories so you don't feel so alone. Um, meditation has helped me. I hit and miss with me. Sometimes I do it, sometimes I don't. But when I do do it, I know it's very beneficial. Um, so those alternative things appeal to me. Um, and listen, I've been listening to, you know, different podcasts of people about the power of the mind and all of that sort of thing. So I'm applying that to me so that Sometimes I use that and pass it on to Andy. Mm. Well, thank you for um, bringing the story to us and bringing the story to the listeners. Uh, I go back to the words that you said to Andy on the phone when you said, um, you know, you're very lucky, Andy. Um, I think there's a little bit of a prophetic thing in there as well. Um, and, and I put it to the listeners and to yourself that Andy is very lucky and... The reason he's lucky is because he's got a mum who absolutely cares about him and um, is absolutely and completely committed uh, to him as a person and, and um, he's lucky to have you and I thank you for bringing uh, the story to us. There is so much to be gained and, and to be learnt uh, from what it is that you've told us this morning and uh, I think many people are going to... Um, have their education enhanced by listening to what it is that you've had to say. So thank you so much for joining us and uh, a shout out to Andy. Uh, keep well and, and keep pushing um, and thank you for being such a, a great support to him. You're most welcome and we'll see where the journey continues.